Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Uh, my name is Kelly. I am an ethics advisor at the National Office and to, with me today I have Nadia and Trish who are also from the ethics team. Hey Kelly. Hi Kelly. So today's topic is talking about questions to ask about contracts if you are new to a job or if you're about to employ someone, or even if your contract hasn't been updated in a while. Now, it is a little bit strange that the ethics team are talking about contracts, so we wanted to explain a little bit about why we chose this topic today. Um, this is something that members call us um, maybe when things go wrong, or it's become a bit of an ethical issue on a professional level. So we wanted to share with members some practical information about contracts um, and have a little bit of a closer look at what areas might become a bit contentious for members. And towards the end of the podcast, we're going to talk about some tips for how to manage a situation if it's become a challenging conversation. Now, we know that some of these conversations may feel a bit awkward, but they don't need to be. We may not be as familiar as speech pathologists in discussing business arrangements, but these are topics that we do need to discuss and we should approach them with an objective mindset um, and they don't need to become a difficult conversation if we stick to the facts and be objective. Trish, would you like to talk to us a little bit about what kind of expectations could members be thinking about or considering in their contract. Sure. Thanks, Kelly. Yes, as Kelly said, uh, one of the things that we're aware of is that sometimes expectations between an employer and an employee can become a little bit muddled or they're not clear. So a contract is a mechanism to provide information about what the expectations are in terms of things like caseload management, numbers of clients per day, client presentations, what sort of complexity level different speech pathologists with different levels of experience might be expected to work in, work with, uh, the travel requirements for a position, the tools required to do the job, for example, access to assessments, intervention approaches, time to make resources. If the client number per day and the clinical complexity is higher than expected by the employee, what support will be provided to them to manage that? For example, do they have access to supervision and some time for administration and planning tasks that's protected from needing to be clinical contact time? Another expectation that should be really clear in a contract is the type of employment. So is it a, um, an employee relationship, a contract, contractor relationship? What are the terms of payment? What frequency will the pay be paid? 
uh, other working rights clear within the contract? Is the contract clear about the terms for annual leave, sick leave, superannuation contributions, all those things that um, we don't necessarily, well, we shouldn't necessarily take for granted are clear. Then they must be clear within the contract. When you sit down and discuss the contract, that's an opportunity for both parties to confirm some other aspects of how the work will happen. For example, with administration, who will make and confirm appointments? When will reports and letters be written and what sort of timeframes are expected for those? What are the procedures for liaising with other professionals and when will this happen? And are there policies and procedures that support all of those activities? Regarding the workplace culture, what can you learn about this through the contract and or the discussion about the contract? How is a positive culture supported? What are the values of the organisation? How are disputes resolved? And does the company have any particular method of communication between team members? If you're working alone, what are the procedures that promote safety at work? And what, can be, what support can be provided after a difficult session with a client? An area that's really important for student speech pathologists, if they're considering working in a position as an allied health assistant, is that the role and responsibilities need to be very, very clear. How often will you meet with a supervising clinician? How will you receive support to carry out tasks? And how much clarity is there around that you are not making clinical decisions or carrying out assessments that are not appropriate for an allied health assistant to undertake? Also, if you're looking at this position as something that maybe will transition into a qualified speech pathology position, what will happen once you do qualify? How is that transition going to occur? Because you should no longer be working as an allied health assistant at that point and your contract should change. So there's some of the touch points that the ethics team are aware of in terms of they can become difficult conversations if they're not clear from the start and those discussions can be held in an objective and professional manner. Kelly, I think uh, we're going back to you about some other issues. Thanks, Trish. Lots to think about there. Lots of things to maybe look into and ask questions about if you're not sure. We also wanted to include some things to consider if you're an employer who's looking to engage a speech pathologist in services. Now, the first thing here is to say that as speech pathologists, this is not within our scope of practice. So we'd advise you to get some advice on developing the content in your contract. Uh, one way that you can do this is bar members can contact Workplace Plus and um, they'll be able to give some informal advice over the telephone. The number for Workplace Plus at the moment is 0394920958. Something to think about as an employer is the roles and responsibilities that you're including in your contract. Are they clear? And have you clearly articulated them to the person that you're, you're going to engage in services so that your expectations are clear for them? Um, think some things you also might want to think about are codes of conduct that you might have, um, how you prefer communication. Uh, and something that comes up a lot for that members contact us about is notice period requirements. Um, and kind of expectations about how that notice period is managed, um, including you know, how much time you might need, 
um, and managing that maybe transition into when an, another speech pathologist might need to be hired um, to take over your caseload. So that's certainly something for members to think about and ask questions about and be clear on so that that can be a smooth transition. We, moving on, we wanted to talk a little about supervision because I think this is really important when you're uh, accepting a new contract. And supervision is important for all speech pathologists at all stages of their career. So it's important to have a conversation about what this will look like and how this will happen um, in your contract. Supervision may be formal, it may be individual, it may be group, maybe a mixture. Um, people can ask questions about peer supervision, informal supervision, um, for example, who will be available to answer questions that are maybe clinical, case discussions, operational questions. Are there any opportunities for journal discussions or reflective practice opportunities? And are there any team training opportunities? Another thing on this line of thinking is thinking about professional development. So what supports are available throughout the year for that? Is there, for example, a yearly budget? Is there a number of days that would be paid for members to be able to carry out professional development? And if you have a particular area of clinical interest, could, how could this be supportive or kind of developed over the year? Um, this doesn't have to be formal. It could also be informal, for example, work shadowing, uh, doing some joint sessions or some reflective practice or whole team discussions. So there's loads of opportunities within supervision and it doesn't need to look like that traditional kind of one-to-one. -one. Um, and so you can have a chat about what are the opportunities that are available for you. Uh, moving on now to talk about another big topic that comes up a lot for us in the ethics team, which is restraint of trade. Nadia, do you want to explain a little bit about this topic? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. Um, this is something that comes up very, very regularly in terms of our contacts with Speech Pathology Australia members. And it's something that I think is part of the culture that we all live in at the moment is that we don't really read terms and conditions anymore. We just hit agree or accept and move on. And it is so important when we are talking about something like your contract that you have read it and that you have understood it because you are going to be required ethically and possibly legally as well to comply with that. And sometimes restraint of trade is something that comes up in a way that people will often say, oh, well, it might not necessarily, if I were to challenge it in court, maybe it wouldn't go as far as being able to be um, upheld in that moment in time. And that really isn't the point in any of these sorts of things. In that moment in time, perhaps legally, there might not be as much of an obligation, but ethically, there is still a very, very important stance that you need to be taking there. So even if there isn't a restraint of trade in your contract, it really would still be something that you'd need to have a conversation with your employer or manager or whoever it kind of um, is your oversight person um, about the possibility if you were wanting to set up a business in that proximity or location that would be in competition with your employer at that point in time. So making sure that you're having those conversations up front is really, really important. Um, if you think that you may not be able to take on a role because it will impact or it may impact your future decisions or plans, then that might be the conversation that you need to have then. You might, before you sign a contract, before you agree to do anything, you might need to be transparent with your employer 
about the fact that you are thinking about doing this and you've taken this role because it is so convenient and nearby to you at that point in time. Um, there are different types of restraint and trade of trade. So there may well be by location, it may well be by time, but usually it's by both. And so that would look like you can't work in this area for X period of time. Um, so yeah, that potentially is something that can be a little bit tricky. So making sure you're having those conversations up front is really, really important. And sometimes these conversations can be a little bit tricky. So we're just gonna talk through a few tips about how to approach these conversations. If you're feeling like a little bit anxious about it, or if you think it might be a difficult conversation for the other party as well. So the key here is demonstrating respect. And this comes back to the code of ethics as well. It's something about how we always are professionally communicating is that respect is an underlying factor here. It, also another factor is fairness and kindness. So when you are going into a conversation that you think is going to be difficult, make sure you prepare for it wherever that's possible to do. So maybe script a little bit of it, make sure that you've got some key points, whatever works for you. Um, so preparation and making sure that you can identify those key elements and possibly even playing devil's advocate a little bit there and thinking, what's this other person likely to say back to me and being able to prepare for that is super important in that moment in time. And that helps you manage those difficult topics and hopefully keeps them feeling a little bit more comfortable for that other party. Um, you should also inform the other party that you would like to meet about this agenda. So let them know in advance what it's going to be about so they can be prepared as well then plan how you're going to raise that conversation and what outcome you're looking for so that you can communicate your desired message and continue to maintain a respectful and responsive dialogue with the other party. Something that can happen here is if one party is taken off guard, it can become a bit emotional. And that is where things become very, very tricky because it's very tricky in that moment in time to separate your emotions. So if you've been able to prepare beforehand, that's always going to be beneficial. A lot of the time, most of this conversations, uh, most of these conversations rather, can be most efficiently done face-to-face. -face. That could be via a video call or even a phone call, but ideally you've got the ability to use nonverbal communication and your tone to help facilitate that conversation. Whereas you can't really get that from a wall of text in an email. Um, plan the language that you're going to use, make sure you're being objective and factual and give the other person space to express their thoughts and their emotions as well and make sure you're listening. Follow up that conversation in writing, clarify what happened and any actions that need to happen from there. If you're an employer in that, in that conversation, make sure that you have confidence in and considered all of the elements that you might need to and have tailored this contract for your organization's goals, values, needs, and then seek advice. Make sure your contracts are legal. Make sure they're structured appropriately. If you're the employee in that situation, you should go in having confidence that you've thought about how you're going to act in accordance with the content and then ask any questions that you might have or if you're uncomfortable about anything. Seek your own advice. Make sure that you feel informed as well. So in summary, um, make sure that you are understanding your contract, exactly what it is that you are agreeing to. Help your future employee understand it if you're an employer and ensure that you're having clear, objective conversations which support this understanding. We have a pile of resources that are on the Speech Pathology Australia website. Um, it's also worth having a look at the Fair Work Australia website, Workplace Plus, and there's some great resources within the Ready for Work resources, which are within the SPA website as well. The other thing you can do is reach out to us. We're more than happy to have a conversation and direct you to some of these resources as well. 
Thanks, Nadia, for that summary on restraint of trade and for indicating some further resources to help in this area. Now, another topic that we wanted to discuss today on this podcast is professionalism and the importance of this in the current climate and situation. Now, we know that clinicians are working in stressful environments for a variety of reasons. And our role here in the ethics team is to be responsive to members' needs. So on reflection, we've observed that some of stress is affecting members' capacity to demonstrate professionalism. And the reason we want to bring this up is because of the type and the number of formal complaints and queries that we're receiving at national office. So in this next part of the podcast, we want to share some information on how members can focus on professionalism and reduce the likelihood of a formal complaint. So the first thing to share about professionalism is the importance of responsive practice. And this is our theme for the year in the ethics team. And so throughout the year, we'll be covering various ways that members can engage in responsive practice to support their clinical work. So let's start with a definition. What is responsive practice? Well, in the professional context, it's the ability to meet someone where they are at at that moment in time and offer support and assistance to ensure at least that they are able to be safe and also to thrive in their situation. It's an important part of professionalism because it enables you to be flexible and adapt your clinical practice to your individual clients. And it's a value that is embedded in our 2020 code of ethics. So people are gonna be affected by the pandemic in different ways and to different, in different degrees. And our recovery from this pandemic is not gonna be a linear pathway. Um, Something to be mindful of if you're working in the um, paediatric field is that there's an enormous amount of stress for parents of young children. And if you're working with adults, carers and families are also under a lot of stress. And this is going to affect both the amount of information that they're able to process, um, the amount of tasks that they're able to do. And at times, challenging for us as clinicians is perhaps it might affect their behaviour within the therapeutic process. So it's important to keep reflecting on what it means to work in partnership with clients and families. This is it might mean reducing expectations. Um, Things that can appear normally to be quite simple might not be simple and easy at the moment. And we might need to make allowances for that. You might need to facilitate communication channels more if you don't hear back from people. You might need to create more space to listen to a parent or carer's concerns or frustrations. And you might need to reflect on feedback that you're given by a client and adapt your practice accordingly. Now to do all of these things, it's important that you're looking after yourself so that you have the capacity and the energy to be responsive. Another thing to consider here is to acknowledge the way the NDIS has changed our clinical work. Many NDIS clients come with complex situations and require specific clinical knowledge, and as a result, more time and energy to manage. Acknowledging this and ensuring you have the knowledge to work with that client and to support to develop skills that you need and make time and space for this will help you to support these families without things becoming frayed or escalating. They're such important points, Kelly, and really, really great that we can take the time to 
reflect and think about them. A second important part of professionalism is the importance of clear communication, which you've touched on, but it's worthwhile exploring a little bit further because it's important to recognise that in times of stress, we all need to focus on our communication skills and adapt them. This means keeping our language factual and clear, repeating information, following up verbal information with written information to support the person who's receiving it to process it and check in with that client to ensure that they've understood you correctly. Again, it takes energy to be able to keep your communication objective and measured when the person you are engaging with is using emotive language or not calm themselves. It's much better to address misunderstandings or grievances in a phone call or face-to-face rather than engaging in written emails, which may be interpreted in a way you did not intend and can escalate quite quickly if the person's not happy with your reply. By speaking to the other person, you'll be able to use your tone of voice to help them feel listened to, to be able to address any misunderstandings or miscommunication, and also present yourself as a person who's willing to work with them to solve the situation or problem. Thanks, Trish. Uh, Another point to mention here about professionalism is the importance of honesty and respect. Um, And it goes without saying, it's important to be honest and respectful to your colleagues. We know at the moment there's a lot of movement in the profession and it's important to be aware of that if you're approaching a new workplace for information, if that's a private practice and if it's, you know, a, a speech pathologist that set that practice up, it takes time and energy for them to give you information about their workplace policies and procedures And this information is a part of their intellectual property. So it's important to be honest about your intentions for conversations about contracts. Um, And that's an important way that you can treat your colleagues with respect. Similarly, it's important to be honest and transparent um, with your clients. And this is a way that we demonstrate respect to them also. For example, you may need to be proactive to explain why a task has not been completed or be realistic with a client about how much time you require to do a task rather than overcommitting yourself. Another part of professionalism is being non-judgmental, regardless of our own personal opinions. In the professional space, we need to be aware of our own biases, uh, not to make assumptions about people or things that they think and believe or will do. Uh, And a big part of being able to do that is being aware of our own stress levels so that we can put... Uh, strategies or other actions in place to protect our own energy and boundaries. Um, You may find it useful to have a look at the new professional development program produced by Speech Pathology Australia on the Learning Hub and it's about called it's called riding the wave of workplace stress and it's about exploring what things can be stressful in the workplace and identifying some strategies and tips that might be useful for you. As we all know stress can impact on our self-awareness And having clarity about our personal and professional scope of practice may not be front of mind when we're stressed. However, we are always still obliged to work within scope of practice for a speech pathologist, as well as our own personal scope of competency. For example, if a client wants information and advice about medical issues, be very clear what you can say as a speech pathologist. Be mindful of when you can provide professional advice and when that person should be referred on to a different professional. And finally, we will be exposed to various points of view. 
particularly at the moment. And listening and being responsive can take time and effort, even in non-COVID context, let alone at the moment. So it's exacerbated when everybody is stressed. Having the headspace to be able to continue to consider the other's person, the other person's perspective is still just as important as it always has been, but it might take a little bit more effort and awareness to achieve when stress levels are high and energy and concentration is low. As the Code of Ethics states, what we're talking about is demonstrating our professionalism by taking time to value, listen and show compassion. Thanks, Trish. Um, and so finally, just to uh, round off this podcast, we want to just share with members that we're planning more online collaboratives throughout the year and we'll be giving more information about formal complaints and responsiveness in various capacities. So thank you all for listening and please tune in to next week's Speak Up Conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.